Hi folks, welcome to the show. On this episode, we speak with Thomas Perfumo, Head of Strategy at Kraken and leader of the Kraken Intelligence Team. He talks to us about some of the key implications of the Ethereum merge and why the transition to proof of stake is a watershed moment for the network. I hope you enjoy the show. Please note that this podcast does not constitute financial product advice. You should consider obtaining independent advice from a financial advisor before making any financial decisions. Thomas, thanks so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to talk to me. You've been on the show before. Welcome back. Just for the for the new listener, it'd be great if you could just tell uh, us a little bit about you know your role at Kraken, and and, uh, and then we can get stuck into to the merge, which I think is a really interesting uh, a topic. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me again. Um, so my name is Thomas Perfumo. I am currently the head of strategy for Kraken. I've been here for five years, and I have the pleasure of working on the business strategy with with our team here internally, as well as overseeing some of the the research efforts through a public facing content group we call Kraken Intelligence. So that's the the quick story on what I'm currently doing. Yeah. And for people who are wondering how public the Kraken Intelligence uh, unit is, we've got, uh, you know, uh, monthly, quarterly, uh, a whole bunch of reports that that come out and you can and you can grab them from from the website. So I encourage people to go and check some of those out. I'll put a link in the show notes as well. Um, and today, look, I, th- I think there's heaps of stuff we could talk about, but I really wanted to talk about the merge, the fact that it's completed successfully. Um, it'd, be, it'd be cool, Thomas, if you could, you know, um, talk the listener through, I guess, a before and after, you know, and, and why why the merge, why proof of stake in, in general, I think would be actually a really good starting point. Like, why did this happen? Yeah, so logistically, there hasn't actually been all that much change in the last few weeks with the merge. And what I mean by that is that the merge really kicked off with the launch of what's called the beacon chain in December of 2020. And that was effectively the proof of stake chain. And that's been running concurrently with what we know as the proof of work chain uh, that is Ethereum for the last couple years. And what happened about a week and a half ago now is we basically turned off the off switch for the proof of work chain and migrated all the functionality to the beacon chain, which again was running for almost two years now. And with respect to staking on Ethereum, it's pretty much identical to how it has been for the last two years, which is that your assets are currently locked up, earning rewards as you stake. And the availability of those assets will be realized sometime in the next six to nine months when there is another upgrade called the Shanghai Fork. And that's, I think, really when you start to feel the full completion of this migration is when you're able to freely stake and unstake assets on the Ethereum network and uh, and quickly get involved in validation or exit whenever you'd like. So I think that's going to be a big moment for truly completing the merge, but it's really been a work in progress for the last several years and was previously on the roadmap for even uh, probably another couple years before then. I think fundamentally for Ethereum, the view is that proof of stake is going to be the solution towards future scalability of the network. I think in many ways, proof of stake has certain security benefits in terms of 
network validation and scaling that with the growth of the chain. I also see the relevance of proof of stake with respect to the supply inflation for blockchains, where as, as has been reported many times, the cost of upkeeping a miner is perhaps more significant than keeping up a validator. And so the, the amount of incentives or rewards you have to provide are much lower for proof of stake validation. And so you can actually plausibly reduce the supply inflation on these networks. And I think it also adds a little bit more stability to the network in terms of processing transactions. So I would say those, in my personal view, are the three core benefits. That is scalability going forward, the supply inflation discussion, as well as stability of the network in terms of just a consistent level of validation and throughput. That, that's really fascinating. I think just diving into that first point, we don't necessarily need to go through all three, but definitely that first point is something that I, I, um, I'd like to discuss a little further. So what, one of the things that is quite often a, a strong criticism of proof of stake, or at least perceived to be a strong criticism, is that um, by moving away from you know, capital costs and setting up physical um, miners that are spending you know, CPU time and, and running that proof of work algorithm. In moving to proof of stake, it, it means there's the potential for more centralization. And you're 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 arguing the opposite here, I, I guess. Can you talk me through why that is? I think it's really a trade-off. So I would say that the interesting thing about proof of stake, especially when it comes to development like new blockchains, if you, if you think about the last couple of years, when you think about the, the most prominent blockchain releases uh, like Polkadot or Solana, et cetera, they're, they're all stakeable assets. And I think one of the, the reasons why or, or the logic behind that is because it's quite difficult to successfully deploy a new proof of work chain and create the network effect or the the virtuous loop model where you suddenly have a lot of people who are encouraged to go buy equipment to mine your currency. And whereas with proof of stake assets, it's quite easy to liquidate an asset, buy another asset and participate. So the mobility of participating in network validation for proof of stake chains, I think is easier. Mm. And so a lot of the tech that you've seen in the last couple of years, again, has migrated towards proof of stake. Um, and, and that's just a general trend. I think the trade-off with respect to proof of work and proof of stake is that because of the difficulty in creating a vibrant mining network, like you experienced with Bitcoin and previously with Ethereum, it's quite difficult to have new development and ensure that there is going to be a pretty high level of security, particularly in the early days. And so I think it's a very much like a winner takes all security model with respect to proof of work. Of course, this, this satisfies the Bitcoin crowd because they already have that kind of first mover advantage and the, the entrenchment of, of mining and the mining community there. And, and that's great. Obviously, it, it creates a lot of security for the Bitcoin network specifically. But one, I, I would say that with respect to Bitcoin and proof of work mining, you, you're correct that there is an advantage of having a separation between the cost of validation and then the value of the network. So for example, with Bitcoin mining, uh, energy cost and the cost of equipment is what determines the profitability of your 
mining activity or your validation activity. Whereas with proof of stake assets, it's flipped. It's directly tied to the value of the network. Now on the other side of the coin, imagine if the Bitcoin network somehow became a, let's say a $20 trillion valued currency. And in that case, and, and let's say it happened overnight. In that case, the mining network itself will not be able to scale at that same pace. And so you could actually argue that the security model of the Bitcoin network is, is going to scale perhaps more slowly than the potential growth of the network in the short run. Whereas the security model for a proof of stake asset, in my opinion, scales one to one Yeah, um, with the value of the currency. So I think there's just, I think there's trade-offs in, in my opinion. Um, and I, I think as well, like I mentioned before, the, the, the stability of a proof of stake chain with respect to consistent validation times is also very attractive. So we, we had a report out on proof of work versus proof of stake. And our view was that proof of work is more ideal for a currency that's looking to focus on store of value as a use case, like a Bitcoin, for example. Whereas I think for more utility-based chains like Ethereum and Solana, proof of stake perhaps makes more sense. That's really interesting. I think that the that opportunity cost argument when it comes to the value of the network and the and and the, the relative the relative sunk cost versus value in network argument is is a really unique one. So thanks for sharing that with with us. It, it, certainly a a radical shift for a network. To shift, you know, to move from one of these methods to another, um, uh, I'm not sure it's necessarily been done. Um, I guess now that that is, you know, we're well in train. Sure, there's still a little bit of a lockup for people who have already staked Ethereum. There's a little bit of kind of um, time left before we call it, you know, com- the merge complete. Uh, but but now that we're we're proof of stake, we're no longer, you know, none of those miners. Um, that, that had equipment that were, you know, validating the Ethereum network, then they're no longer earning rewards for that. What do you think they've done? Well, I think if, if, if anyone's a holder of Ethereum, obviously they have the choice to easily go and stake that Ethereum. So if you've been a miner and you've been collecting Ethereum all this time and, and you have long-term conviction in the asset, I see no reason why you wouldn't participate in validation. It probably makes your life even a little bit easier not having to deal with the electricity bills in, in this kind of energy environment and uh, and maintaining the equipment. But I, I think I haven't done this exercise. I think it'd be actually pretty funny to look at the prices of, of GPUs in the market because we've seen Ethereum mining actually impact broader video card pricing. Oh, it's come down. It really, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I, my guess is that people are basically getting rid of a bunch of GPU equipment. I don't know that there's another obvious currency where GPU mining is a big deal. And um, and so I'm sure they got rid of the equipment and those who want to stick around with Ethereum are probably staking it now. Well, if theory, uh, you know, gamers who, who had um, some beef with Ethereum because of the cost <laughs> of the uh, GPUs, <laughs> you know, trying to buy new graphics cards has been a challenge. Even even people I know who are who 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 have no real, you know, specific position on 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 crypto found that it found that a you know an imposition, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, the collateral damage of of, of a race for, for for GPU. So yeah, that, that probably won some won some people back there. Okay, so in the longer run here, then um, 
do, do you think the macro story changes? Because, you know, one thing that is definitely the case, what we've seen industrial scale mining operations of proof of work, very, you know, very reliant on uh, liquidation, you know, liquidating mm-hmm. their, their holdings as they come in. There might be a long position, but really, you know, see these listed, these listed uh, Bitcoin mining firms, um, you know, they're, they're, they're essentially trying to return a yield. Uh, and, and so they're liquidating. With proof of stake, the incentive model shifts a little, right? So, so what do you think the, the, the kind of the top-down impact here is then uh, in terms of Ethereum and, and the mining kind of incentive? Yeah, so as you point out with proof of work, I think there is a big discrepancy in terms of the diversity of miners. So going back to the concentration issue, you know, one thing to acknowledge is that mining pools on on Bitcoin are actually quite large and impactful in, in terms of the overall mining community. So you could also equally make the argument that mining pools are, are significantly concentrated on the Bitcoin network, for example. But with that said, you know, the need to liquidate currency to maintain or upkeep with your cost of running equipment is a very real item. And so uh, there are definitely firms who take a policy of holding onto a certain number of Bitcoin, and I'm sure individuals might do the same. But with respect to if you think about like all the people participating in mining and validation, my gut says that it's going to be a much smaller population of institutions and people who are doing that. And so you could, in theory, take a view that the circulating supply of Bitcoin is less locked up. Whereas if you look at Ethereum today, roughly 12 to 15% of the circulating supply is staked. That's locked up, like I mentioned, until the Shanghai fork. If you look at other networks like Polkadot, Solana, et cetera, 75% plus of the circulating supply is staked. And that implies that the assets are locked for a period of a few weeks because of bonding periods. So when you think about the potential ramifications in terms of the supply demand discussion, right now only 12% of Ethereum is effectively locked up for short-term use or, or movements or liquidity. And to the extent that the Shanghai fork causes a significant step up in participation to the same level as a Cardano or Solana and Polkadot, et cetera, you could actually see a circumstance where a significant, significantly higher amount of currency is staked and effectively locked up in a manner where the, the amount of circulating supply that's at the market ready to be bought and sold shrinks quite a bit. So I anticipate that it actually creates a potential condition where the supply becomes more limited on the margin. And to the extent that there is a big take up in demand for ether, it might actually pressure the price upwards as well, more so than it was previously. Yeah, that seems that seems like a, a possible future. Okay, cool. Well, the last thing I guess is just to hone in on that third point you made on the transaction stability argument. Can you talk me through you know, why you believe that to be the case with the proof of stake? Yeah, so I would say there's there's two elements to this. So to the extent that you believe the development community that proof of stake is going to enable 
significant throughput expansion. So with Ethereum, for example, the, the roadmap is to massively scale transactions per second or throughput through a new development called sharding. And the theory here is that sharding is contingent on the application of proof of stake. So if you believe that, then it really creates an environment where you can massively scale the effectiveness of the Ethereum or other stakeable chains. Whereas with Bitcoin, their layer one is much more limited based on a a design choice in terms of the number of blocks produced every so often. And so they've relied on, on Lightning Network as a layer two solution to propose a scalability of Bitcoin at the, at the level of a currency. But even that has uh, some limitations in terms of the, the ability to transact in larger quantities at any given time. So that throughput is one component of stability or network stability, where to the extent that you have significant demand for on-chain activity, like transferring assets between wallets or um, using it as a currency or trying to use an application, the scalability in terms of throughput becomes a big deal. Uh, A more congested blockchain means that all transactions start to slow down, they become more expensive. And so if proof of stake enables you to to really scale up transaction throughput, you start to have a better, more stable kind of environment for uh, scaling up activity on the, the chain. The second component is that proof of stake is fundamentally very different in terms of how blocks are introduced and and validated on the network. So I like to use the analogy of a lottery where proof of work is very similar to a traditional lottery where you might have a bunch of people buying tickets with random numbers, or perhaps they, they write in their own numbers and it's unclear whether there's ever going to be a winner. So you might have a lottery draw every single week but there might be no winners each week for a period of, let's say, a few weeks. And then eventually someone wins the jackpot. Whereas with proof of stake, it's effectively a system whereby a winner is chosen every predetermined period of time. So if you look at the Bitcoin network and you look at when blocks are confirmed, there is a level of variability. You might see a block confirmed two minutes after the the last one, it might be 60 minutes since the last one. And so there is a level of transaction variability uh, to be able to transact on the the Bitcoin blockchain that is absent in many proof of stake designs where you know a block is introduced virtually, at least on Ethereum, between 10 to 15 seconds. So you have a lot more confidence in your ability to transact within a certain period of time. So those are the components of stability Mm. that I'm trying to reference, which is throughput and the confidence in just the expectation around time and and confirmations. Yeah, that's really cool. Thanks for talking through those. I think, um, you know, a lot of people wouldn't, wouldn't have thought, you know, encountered those arguments before. So I appreciate you, you stepping through it. Look, last, last uh, question before I let you go. Um, Thanks again for, for all of your time. Do, do you? What do you think then is is the next big piece of work for Ethereum? You know, one, yes, we've got the, the Shanghai fork to kind of uh, unlock those those you know long long term staked uh, Ethereum assets. Um, 
What do you think the next phase of innovation for Ethereum, what does it look like? It's really going to be sharding, in my opinion. And the development around layer two solutions and things like that. So sharding is, is I think, a a core component of scaling the layer one chain or the top level blockchain. A lot of layer two solutions like Arbitrum, Optimism, et cetera, employ technologies to bring transactions off of the Ethereum main chain. It's actually very similar to Lightning in that sense. And there was previously, I think, a philosophy that layer twos were a short-term solution to the scalability issue on Ethereum. Like let's pull off a bunch of transactions from the main chain and have them confirmed uh, such that we can just speed up all transactions on the network or increase throughput. And I think the philosophy back then was, again, it's short term. And once the main chain grows with scale through sharding, there's not really a need for layer twos. And I think that has significantly changed uh, that philosophy over the last couple of years where there is indeed a future for both layer one scaling that is sharding and layer two solutions uh, that may enhance privacy or provide even greater levels of scale such that you could even operate, for example, an order book that updates very regularly. Um, So you can have very interesting applications built on the layer twos now that we've moved past the, the proof of stake merge Um, And so I think those are the two biggest factors is just seeing overall scalability of the network, both in terms of the main chain through what's called sharding, as well as the new solutions that layer twos are going to be uh, enabling over the next few years. Amazing. Okay, cool. I look forward to seeing these developments, (laughs) as I'm sure you do. And and just lastly, for the listener, if they want to, you know, get this kind of insight uh, from the Kraken intelligence team, how do they how do they get it? Where can they go? Yeah, so the easiest way to do it is to subscribe to our research, and you can do so by going to kraken.com slash subscribe slash intelligence. You can also follow the Kraken Twitter channel. It's at KrakenFX, and we also publish uh, the reports via our blog. So those are the three main channels to catch updates from our research group. But I would suggest subscribing to our newsletter and research reports from that link again, kraken.com slash subscribe slash intelligence, because we provide you a newsletter that gives you the latest news on a daily basis so that you can keep up and and learn about what's going on in the industry across a variety of topics. And then, of course, the deep dive research reports that are offered monthly in an ad hoc or quarterly basis where we delve into some topics at a more advanced level. Cool. Okay, well, I'll put those links in in the show notes as well. Uh, And for those who are driving along and can't look at the screen, it's Kraken with a K. Don't forget that. All right, guys, thanks so much for your time. Thomas, it's it's always good talking to you and and getting your insight and and, and looking forward to our next chat sometime in the future. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks everyone for joining me on this show and for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe and review on your podcast platform of choice and we'll make sure we take you right to the edge of the crypto frontier. And remember, you can learn more about all things crypto by visiting kraken.com slash learn. Until next time, I've been Jonathan Miller and this has been the Crypto Frontier.